losing someone like this sticks with you for the rest of your life. Good morning, good evening, and good night. Whatever time of day you're listening to this, welcome to What Lies in the Dark. I'm Jay Yvonne. All your life, you've been taught that the monsters you fear are under your bed and they're hiding in your closet. As you grow older, you find out that monsters aren't real. But are they? They don't hide or go boo in the night. They look just like us they even live next door they're our friends they're our family they're our neighbors and sometimes they're even our spouses this isn't to scare you it's to keep you vigilant keep your eyes open it's to debunk the idea that monsters just simply are not real Statistics say about 50% of victims know their attackers. That means 50% of the time, you shouldn't fear the unknown monsters in the dark. You must be careful of the monsters you already know. Maybe you have to know the darkness before you can appreciate the light. If you're anything like me, you love true crime. You're simply addicted to trying to figure out the who, what, when, where, and the why the psychology of it all. You sit on the edge of your seat trying to piece the puzzle together before the end of the story. So allow me every week to tell you a true crime story. Come feed your true crime addiction with me. Grab your coffee, midday pick-me-up, wine, adult beverage, or whatever you're into. And let's get into this week's story. Warning, some listeners may find the episode just beyond this warning hard to listen to, upsetting, and disturbing. The episode may contain graphic content, triggering and or sensitive material, explicit language, and adult themes. These are true events. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Junkies. Welcome back, family. Thank you for coming to the page yet again another Monday for the What Lies in the Dark weekly episode. So if you have not listened to last week's episode, you definitely need to go back because this is just part two from last week. So um, as always, not going to do a whole bunch of talking, but don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends, share the podcast. If you want to stay connected, Instagram is WLITD underscore podcast. And if you would like to give case suggestions, the best way to do such is WLITD podcast at gmail.com. Um, and obviously WLITD is what lies in the dark. So it's what lies in the dark underscore podcast on Instagram and what lies in the dark podcast at gmail.com. So, um, 
I'm going to do this a little different. Usually I give my commentary at the very end, but because this is a two-part episode, I'm going to start with the commentary from last week's episode, okay? So first, um, what's up with that Irvin Murphy guy? Like, the okay so Irvin Murphy was the one that originally or not originally that he's the one who took Stephen helped take Stephen um and they quote him as being like very naive and so I'm just wondering like the way that they describe him I think I've even read some things that said that maybe he had some um some like learning disabilities or he was just really trusting was he a victim or was he still like the horrible, terrible person that you can, that you know, that you only you can be for agreeing to take somebody like when, when he, when he was brought the idea, the proposal by Kenneth to help him still a young boy, even though it's like, oh, I want to raise him to be religious and I want to give him a better life. Like the fact that you have to steal him from his family and lie to him. Like, I wonder if that ever dawned on him. So I I was upset when I was doing the story and I got to thinking last week and I was like, was Irvin a victim in some sorts? Because it, it didn't cross his mind that they were doing something bad. Was he just looking at the good side of it of like, oh, he said he's going to get a better life. Um, Randall same thing was Randall a victim or was he still the slimy creep um Randall is the 15 year old friend that um all he needed was some drugs 50 dollars and alcohol in order to help Kenneth commit the second um abduction for Timmy um like what was going on in his household I try not to judge people because you don't always know everybody's story but I'm just wondering what was going on in his household that like again it didn't dawn on him that they're doing something criminal only thing that he's thinking is I'm gonna get this this and this out of the deal um so I'm wondering if like you know Kenneth was seen as the fun dad because he allowed Steven to just live life he's got to smoke and he got to drink and so were these things like um, Randall's way of being like Steven where now he got to smoke and he got to drink and he had money in his pocket or were things like, you know, not that great at home. Like, you know, um, Kenneth Parnell. So that is our, um, antagonist, the whole story. Um, this man makes children believe that their parents no longer want them. Like what in your mind tells you to say something of that nature and then they continue to play it out and you're like oh I called your parents and they said you can spend the night oh they said you can spend another night okay look I'm tired of you spending the night so I'm just gonna go to the court and because these children are young um really young they don't know that that's not how court works so like how sick is that how cruel is that that you're you know, you're making children believe their families no longer want them and I get you you gotta mess with their minds and you gotta play with the, the their psyche in order for them not to want to go home and give them, you know, I don't know if it would still be considered Stockholm syndrome, but get them, give them Stockholm syndrome because they don't want to go anywhere. They think that you are providing them with a the better life. And, um, in the event that someone comes around and they, you know, want to ask questions, they're not going to give up any information because they think that you're providing them the best possible life. And I just, I just want to know how sick can you be that you formulated this whole entire plan of wanting to give someone a better life. And in all honesty, you probably caused the most harm whatsoever 
even if there was no sexual abuse, by just lying to them and telling them that their families do not want them. Steven struggled with that for so long of like, oh, they haven't found me yet, so they must not want me. And I think it's a terrible thing to do to a child. I mean, even if this was a, a legal adoption to instill in their heads that, that their families do not want them, um, is, is, I don't know. I know that some people probably listening like, well, if their families don't want them, their families don't want them. But telling a child that they're forever holding that in. And I feel like, um, over time, no matter how great of a life they have, because the first people that, that shared the same blood with them, that first people that ever had any anything to do with them did not want them. They forever think, second guess and question when people come around, do you really want to be around me? Because my own family didn't want to be around me. I just think that's a horrible, terrible thing to tell a child. Um, and I know he's sick. Um, but the other thing is like, you're, okay, so you're moving schools. But at the time, I know it was a different time, but like nobody questioned why this kid was moving from school to school. Nobody asked for any records, no identification. No one needed to verify that Stephen and Dennis, like that they were the same, you know, they came from the same DNA or whatever, or that he really had parental rights to him. It was just like, I'm gonna drop my kid off at school. Okay, this is Dennis. Um, I think I said if Steven and Dennis were related to each other, what I meant was that Steven was really Dennis, um, and that Steven slash Dennis belonged to Kenneth. Like no, like it, Kenneth just dropped him off at these different schools and nobody asked for his previous records. Nobody asked for his birth certificate. It literally was just like, oh, this kid wants to learn and his father is really in his life. So yeah, just drop him off. Like no adult ever got wind of what was going on. No, no adult in wherever the area they lived when their kids were coming home and saying, oh, I want to go to Steven's. Um, at the time his name was Dennis. I want to go to Dennis's house and your kids are coming home high and drunk. And you're like, what the heck do y'all do over there at Dennis's house? Like nobody's parents were getting wind what was going on at the house to even like raise some kind of alarm bells. They're like, okay, um, something's going on. And again, I know it was a different time. Maybe, you know, people stayed out of each other's business back then. But I just feel like there was there were too many things that were going on around the home for people to not poke their nose in. And maybe Steven could have been returned home to his family a lot sooner. Um, next, what was the protocol back then for registration? Because, and when I say registration, I don't mean school registration. I mean like sex offender registration. He was already convicted of a sex crime and somehow he didn't have to register for that crime, which helped him fly under the radar. And then he got out of sexual charge, um, sexual charges for both Timmy and Steven. And then he fails to let registration when he asked to register know that he's moving nothing happens like why is the system back then for tracking sexual predators so lax like you are convicted of a crime but we don't we don't force you or require you to register so now you're able to do whatever you want to do um and then we force you to register but then you don't register your new address and we do nothing about it and then we don't uphold the charges for any sexual crimes that you committed against Timmy and Steven, even though we believe those are probably not your only two victims. And then we give you an infuriating sentence of seven years for everything you did to these two children. 
And somehow we think that a convicted sex offender is just like going to stop sex offending. At this point, you've done it three times. You were convicted of sexual crimes with the first one. You kidnapped and held hostage two others. And there have been reports of sexual abuse by not only you, but apparently Stephen's friends also said that Kenneth was trying to hit on them and have sex with them. So you have other people who can also um, say uh, Kenneth did these things or he said these things. So you have, to me, enough circumstantial information to investigate and try to um, get him on some of these sexual crimes and you just let him go scot-free like because you don't want to do the work because it's reported that the the sexual crimes because they move so often happen in so many different counties that the doing the work to figure out well what was the jurisdiction in this county and how many years would he get in this county and how many times it happened in this county was just too much and i understand that but we couldn't get him on any of his sexual like crimes we couldn't get him for anything like you make this poor boy relive the terrible things that happened to him for seven years and then you can't even get him on the thing that probably was the most traumatizing yeah out of here with that like justice system what where show me where it was so anyways um so you know kudos to yosemite national park for like being a second chance park and in and and giving jobs to people who probably can't get jobs that easy but like what the heck yosemite national park like yes give second chances but hiring sex offenders to work around a park unsupervised how do you know that when you hired them first off to be whatever cleaner maintenance work in the cafeteria restaurant clean the park that when children are coming by that how are you keeping up with that that's that's crazy that's so crazy i don't know if things have changed i didn't read anywhere that said that um things had changed but um i think that's really 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 terrible like terrible because how do we keep you from diving into your urges again if we give you like 32 flavors of ice cream and expect you not to indulge? And I'm not saying children are ice cream, but that's just the best way that I know how to explain it. You literally set children free in a Toys R Us. That's what you did with these sex offenders. You set them free in a Toys R Us and expected them to like keep them hands keep their hands to themselves. And I know I guess in um in K Kenneth's circumstance it was different because he wasn't a registered sex offender so when he applied for the job um you didn't know he was a registered sex offender so i guess i can't like beat you down too much for that it's really where he came from's fault that they didn't make him register but um what and then later on he's able to work at a boys home like y'all are just giving this man free access i'm i'm hoping and praying because i've read some other laws and legislation that things have gotten a lot better just in different um states when it comes to registration for sex offenders but i really hope that this was a lesson and I hate to say that I hate to say that I hope that you know the tragic events that happened taught lessons because why does something tragic have to happen why do we have to be reactive instead of proactive why couldn't we already have those things into place and if it's too much if it's too hard to whatever um we've got them into place maybe you can come become a little bit lax because you realize okay this is stupid and you know this is too much or whatever you can it's better to be too prepared than not prepared at all that's just all i'm saying 
So that's my rant for last week's episode. So now we're going to get into part two. So remember I told you there are two brothers that um, have two totally different stories. So you've got Steven's story of being kidnapped and everything that happened with him. But I mentioned a lot of Carrie. This is Carrie's story. Steven's transition home was really hard. And I know how that sounds, but his family doesn't want to be that family. They they don't want him to go to counseling and air out and relive everything that's happened to him. But counseling probably very likely would have helped him and the family because they're all struggling to adjust and his siblings are having a hard time with the attention that Steven's getting. So much so that they felt neglected. His parents didn't know how to let him be his age. All they remember is they lost their baby, they lost their their child, and that's who they've been longing to get back. So I feel as if they, they're grieving Stephen and Stephen needs to unpack what's happened to him as well as probably talk about school and the bullying and his home struggles and just everything that's going on. He has a lot of stuff that he needs to get out there. And I mean, without all this, he's also struggling and ends up losing everything, questioning if he should have even come home and going back to drugs and alcohol. So even without the transition of coming back home and trying to be, you know, a teenager at this point, he's still just struggling with just the transition, everything going on at home. And like I said earlier, the thought process that Kenneth put in his head that his family didn't want him, he's now questioning if he should have even come home because he thinks he's a burden to his own family. This story just continues to face tragedy, more and more tragedy and more and more tragedy Um, because Stephen ends up passing at a young age. And Kenneth never learns his lesson as an old man, still trying to get people to kidnap children for him. And Timmy also passes away. And then we have Corey. So when Stephen returned home, the entire family is ecstatic. They do a press conference and interviews, and they're just talking about everything that they've gone through. Carrie was also really happy that Stephen had returned, or so it's reported. There is an infamous photo of the Stainer family where um, everyone is standing in the front of the house and they're all smiling and they're like really happy that Stephen's home. But Carrie is standing there blank faced. He's just staring. He isn't smiling at all. And he's the only one who doesn't seem to be happy. Carrie and Steven started to develop like a very strange relationship with one another. They were always fighting. They couldn't seem to get along or be on the same page, even seeing eye to eye. So Steven isn't used to the house rules and stability. And that's all that Carrie knows. So they're battling just that. Like Steven knows how to go out and party and be wild and, you know, live a carefree life. And all that Carrie knows is the structure of their households. So Stephen's death is an, is another tragedy to the Stainer family. And not long after that, Carrie and Stephen's uncle is shot and killed. The murder's unsolved, but it's speculated that Carrie may have had something to do with it because he was the only one living in the household with the uncle at the time. 
Carrie starts to suffer really badly. He's having these nervous breakdowns. He's making these outrageous threats. He is like, one day he's having this nervous breakdown while he's at work. And one of his coworkers comes up to him and asks him like, what's going on? Are you all right? And he's like, I'm just really nervous and anxious and I don't know what's going on. And in talking to him, he literally just says, I want to get in my car and drive it into the workplace, killing everyone. He's so nervous and anxious, but somehow wants to get behind the wheel of a car and just take out a whole office full of people. And so people around him are starting to get very, very concerned because he seems like he's very unstable. So he enters into a mental facility, but he elects not to stay. In the Hulu documentary, Captive Audience, Carrie's brother, Corey, was asked, like, was Carrie unwell? And Corey says, yes, Carrie was unwell as far back as I can remember. Even as a toddler, he was off. Any and everyone he met would tell you that. So it's it's notated that even before everything that took place with his brother, there was just something that people noticed about Carrie. So Carrie finds freedom from everything he's feeling when he spends time alone in the woods. So Carrie moves to Yosemite, the same place that Kenneth Parnell, his brother's abductor, had worked. While living here, he works as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge, which is a small hotel just outside of the park. He finds himself living above the restaurant at Cedar's Lodge. And it's even said that like everybody really liked him. And there was a couple of instances here. Um, an instance at the restaurant, one of the workers was really eerie of Carrie and she said that she kind of felt like he was watching her daughter and she's like listen my daughter is underaged and like it's very inappropriate and it never said what came of it but she was just like she's the only one that reports at that time ever having her eye on him and like being suspicious of him so things seem to look up after his move. Um, Carrie is getting along with his co-workers. He's adjoining the scenery of his new plays. And everyone around seems to like and trust him but that one co-worker. So in February of 1999, three women come and stay at the lodge. And they're just enjoying their vacation. That night, they eat at the diner. And they decide to go back to their um, lodge and relax and watch a movie. Sometime in the night, they receive a knock on the door and like it's nighttime. So they're like in their PJs, all ready for bed, just chilling, relaxing, watching this movie. So Carol, which is the woman, the mom, looks out and she sees a man and he appears to be the maintenance man. And he says, hey, there was reported that there's a leak upstairs and I just need to check it out. And Carol's thinking, I don't see a leak. Wouldn't I know if there was a leak? And so the handyman continues to insist that there is one. And if they wait, it'll be the middle of the night when they finally discover it. And they'll have to get up, grab all their stuff and possibly move rooms. And like, do you really want to get up in the middle of the night to do that? And so against her better judgments, it's middle of the night. Carol lets the handyman in. So inside the room is Carol's son, her daughter, Julie's son, and her daughter's friend, Sylvania Palazzo. So Carol is leery. She's like, you're coming here in the middle of the night. We're all ready for bed. So she's watching this man really, really closely. And then he exits the bathroom and he comes back with a gun. 
and he tells them that he wants the money and the keys to the car. The man then blindfolds the the woman and the two teenage girls with duct tape before taking Julie and Savina into the bathroom. He then pulls out rope and begins to strangle Carol. Like, gave her no opportunity to get what he asked for, to plead and fight for her life. Literally, he had no plans of letting her survive. He just did what he did. And then afterwards, he takes the sheets off the bed, he wraps her body up, and places her in the trunk of her own car. Her own car. Like, what? So then he goes back in and he sexually assaults the girls for the next couple of hours. Savina is begging and screaming and her crying is scaring the freak out of him. He is like, all this noise you're making, I'm going to get caught. So he thinks that someone might hear him. So he grabs rope and he strangles her too. He does the process all over again, wrapping the body up in sheets and then placing it in the trunk of Carol's car. So that's two down with one more to go. So he then grabs Julie and he places her in the passenger seat. It's said that he just kind of Herculeses her. He takes her, he picks her up and he puts her in the passenger seat. And he's just like, I'm just, you know, I don't, I have no idea what he thought when he was doing this, but he gives her no opportunities to do anything. He just places her in the passenger seat. And she has no idea that both her mom and her friend are now deceased, nor does he does she know that they're in the trunk of the car. They drive into the um into the park and he drags Julie out of the car and he sexually assaults her again and then decides that that's enough and he slits her throat. He leaves her there as he drives 70 miles away stops the car and then decides that it's probably his best bet to set it on fire and just completely get rid of it. So the three were supposed to meet Carol's husband at the airport and when they didn't show up, he reports them missing. The police are contacted and everyone is on high alert. This starts one of the largest searches in Yosemite. And just imagine like Yosemite is a a national park. So they are searching over large areas trying to figure out what happened to these three people and at this point the locals are refusing to believe that anything wrong has happened because that's not what happens in this area in fact when interviewed ashley stainer who's carrie's niece says that she was only in the seventh grade when this all took place however her love of true crime had her asking how and why anyone would do something like this She's literally quoted saying the thought of not knowing how someone could do that to another person is worse than knowing. And so she's battling the fact that this is her own uncle and they've already faced so much adversity and she's left questioning how he would want to do that to someone else and thinking that that is worse than actually knowing why he'd want to do that to someone else. Police interview the entire staff, including the maintenance man, Carrie. He's so helpful, leading them around the lodge, opening the room, but they don't find anything. There is absolutely no evidence anywhere. A month later, a burned car is found with two bodies in the trunk. 
The bodies are so badly burnt that police must use their dental records to identify them. Imagine that your body is so badly messed up that we can't get fingerprints, we can't get DNA, we have nothing to go off of. We have to take your teeth and make molds and impressions and then send them off to figure out if you are who we think you are. That's horrible. So the two bodies are later identified as Carol's son and Sylvania Palazzo, but there's still another person missing. Where the heck is Julie? So the searches, there there are searches going on everywhere around this park. Anywhere that there is land area, they are searching. They are trying to find this body. The story is getting so much attention because this is not something that happens at Yosemite. The locals have stopped going into the park. They're literally like boycotting going into the park. And the headlines of all the news outlets are asking like, what's going on? Like, who could do such a thing? Six days later, police receive a handwritten letter in the mail with a hand-drawn map. The map is supposed to lead them to Julie's body, and the note reads, we had fun with this one. The police felt the pressure from the public to find answers to all of their questions. They think, okay, well, we had fun with it means that it's more than just one person. They travel using the map 40 miles from where they find the burnt car. There is Julie's body. Eugene and Michael, who are half-brothers with violent criminal backgrounds, are taken into custody, and their arrest is announced publicly. There's no investigation, no one's asked any questions, because police just thought they'd crack the case. They even urge the public to rest and no longer be afraid. They're like, hey, we've got who we need in custody, The note says we, I don't know if they even mentioned the note, but the note says we, and so we've done all the police investigating that we need to do, rest easy at night. But it turns out that they have nothing to do with it. Big shocker there. Everyone wanted to believe that the perpetrators were in custody, but things would not turn out that easy. The real perp is still able to walk freely. By the summertime, another woman is targeted, 26-year-old Joey Armstrong. She's living in Yosemite at a cabin, and she's working. She, she was the one that would take the children around the park, and she would teach them about nature. One day, she's approached by a man taking the back road. He strikes up a conversation with her, telling her that he's just out looking for Bigfoot. He says that he's been at the creek and that's when he noticed her. So he just watched her do her like routine, whatever she was doing for the day. He just watches as she packs up for the day. And he notes that he doesn't see anybody. He doesn't hear anybody. And he thinks that this is the best opportunity that he's going to have. There's no plan, just opportunity. So he goes to his backpack that contains a gun, a knife, rope and duct tape and he walks up to joey and the two begin talking and she thinks nothing of this conversation now that there's some crazy man walking through the woods that's taking the back roads 
and he's talking about he's looking for Bigfoot, but she knows that he seems really nice and he's like moderately attractive. Like, you know, what attractive guy in history would kill people, you know? Like, why should I be leery of this man? Huh. Think we have learned over time that just because you're attractive doesn't mean you're not a creep and you don't do things that you're not supposed to that are not criminal. So the man then pulls out the gun and puts it to her head. Joey turns around, freaking out, and the man instructs her to go back inside the cabin. He forces her into the room, and it seems like he's trying his absolute best to sexually assault her, but she is fighting for dear life. He can't do what he wants to, so he just ties her up and puts her in his car. After not hearing from Joey, because she was supposed to meet her friends, that's why she was packing up her car. After not hearing from her, Joey's friends call and notify police that they're worried about her. Police go to her cabin and they find things in disarray. They find broken glasses and a rag and they note that her car is still there, but they don't see her. And these things just don't seem likely. If she's not around, it looks like there might be, might have been something going on here and um, we can't find her. Mm, we might want to start questioning things. So when they don't see her and they see these things, things don't seem like they're supposed to be there. A search begins and not much time passes before they find something bobbing in the stream behind her house. They're able to go up to it and look at it, fish it out, and they determine that this is Joey's decapitated head. This time, police have something to go off of because there are tire marks, footprints, fingerprints, etc. There's so much evidence. Obviously, these events lead to a public outcry because people are freaking out again. They're like, okay, listen, um, are the previous murders attached to this one? Like, why are people suddenly dying or being killed in the park? So the police realize the possibility that this may be a new serial killer on the loose. Quickly, officials shut that rumor down and they try to ease the hysteria. Someone reports that there was a car traveling on the road, and it's a unique car. They give the description, and police find that that car belongs to one of the lodge's employees, Carrie. Carrie wasn't even a suspect in the first murders. He hadn't left any evidence, and he was able to just go on with his life. It's also probably helped that he didn't have a criminal history, so he never popped up on police's radar for anything suspicious, especially nothing as suspicious as three people being murdered. I'm sorry, suspicious as four people being murdered. So this time, however, he left a trail of breadcrumbs. Police issue a bolo alert and they set out to look for him. He moves quickly i don't know if they he knew that they were going to be on his trail because of how much evidence he left behind but he moves and he ends up at a nudist colony he's recognized from his face being plastered on the news they call police they're dispatched to his location and carrie surrenders at the police station he confesses to joey's murder he states that he carries his backpack around with certain things in it and that he didn't plan this. He says he didn't even beat her. I didn't even beat her. What, what kind of statement is that? I didn't even beat her. I just used the gun to get her to do what I wanted her to do. 
but she fought the entire time. So I guess he was trying to explain any bruising or markings on her, but like that doesn't make it any better. I didn't beat her, but I did force her to do things she probably wouldn't have done otherwise. So while in the car, he says that she's just flying around wildly, like she's trying her best to get out of here. And then suddenly she just falls through the window. But what's discovered happens is that she actually flung herself out the window in hopes that she could save herself. How, I don't even know what the word would be. How um, fight or flight is that? that you're literally going to risk endangering yourself, flinging yourself out of a moving car through a window in order to get out of the situation. And you're tied up at that. So even if you get out of the car, you still not have to run the risk of actually getting away because you are bound. Like, but, but Carrie says like that didn't stop him. He just stops the car and she starts running. He chases her, catches her, slits her throat. He doesn't mention the... You can't talk. He doesn't mention the decapitation. Um, he just says he slits her throat and then he puts her in the water. He he says because she fought so hard, that's why he left all the evidence. Like he didn't have time to sit and plan and clean or anything. She fought so hard and he was trying his hardest not to get caught up that he just left everything behind and went on the run. While being interviewed by Ted Rollins, a journalist and news reporter who had been working what was dubbed the Yosemite Sightseer murder case since February, Carrie says, before I say anything, I want you to contact producers in LA because he wanted a movie of the week about his story. At the time, movie of the week was no longer in existence um, at the time of this interview. So it's like something that had been done or that something that was done in Hollywood years prior, but Carrie wanted confirmation that it would happen. Even though it's something that had been done in a long time, he wants a movie of the week about him. And Ted says, I'll see what I can do. And then Carrie starts talking. Carrie's next words are, I am guilty. I did murder Carrie. Sorry. I am guilty. I did murder Carol and Julie's son and Sylvina Palazzo and also Jody Armstrong. Carrie wanted a movie made about him because there was one made about his brother. Like, after all this time and everything that's happened and the fact that his brother is no longer alive, Carrie is still clinging on to what Stephen became once he returned home. The jealousy and rage and every other um, emotion that he has is still there. So anyways, he tells them everything. He, he says that Julie was cooperative and she didn't cry. He admits to the sexual assault of um, both of the teenage victims. He even tells them that none of this was his plan. Guess what Carrie's plan was originally? He says that he originally was supposed to kill the woman he was in a relationship with. No explanation as to why, but that he was supposed to and that he was going to sexually assault her daughters. For what reason? We have no idea. I'm going to murder this lady. I'm going to kill her daughters. I'm sorry. I'm going to murder this lady and sexual assault, sexually assault her daughters. Talking too fast. I'm sorry. And I'm not going to give you a reason for any of that. But luckily for the three of them, the plans fall through. And Carrie's unable to carry out his sick plan. But unfortunately, because he was unable to carry his plan out with them, he was on high alert when he was walking the park that night and he sees the cabin light on to Carol, Julie, and Savina's room. 
And their cabin is like far, like it said that their cabin was like at the end. So I'm guessing that was also a reason why he decided to do what he did because it wasn't like smack dab in the middle. It was far enough away that I guess he thought he was going to get in, get out and not be um, seen. So when Ted asked him if he would have continued killing, Carrie responds, definitely. I would have killed until I was either caught or killed myself. With his confession on tape, police asked Carrie to take them to where he committed the crimes. On July 25th, 1999, Carrie walked FBI agents to where it all happened. This event was recorded on videotape, but was not made public. They were able to obtain a watch, duct tape, and the knife. Carrie admitted that he'd had dreams of killing women since the age of seven. He said that he'd held out as long as he could, but once he became an adult, he had to fulfill his fantasies. He said he fought and resisted the urge for so long. Like, way, yay, pat on the back, Carrie, that you waited so long to be a creep and a murderer and sexually assault people. What? So Carrie's arrested and he's taken to the jurisdiction closest to Yosemite. Carrie pleads guilty to Joey's murder in September 2000. Carrie was tried in a federal court because Joey's murder took place in a national park and he is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He then faces the death penalty for the Yosemite murders. In July 2002, for the trial of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, many details come to light in the midst of this case. According to Michael Kroll, a variety of deliberating issues in the family that repeat for generations were found through trial revelations, including alcoholism, mental issues, sexual abuse, and the abuse of all kinds, really. Carrie is tried in state court for these three, and he's found guilty and sentenced to death in 2002. He is still on death row. Still. Like... They elected at some point that they weren't going to carry out, um, you know, death for death row inmates. And so he's just, I'm not going to say living comfortably, but living comfortably on death row. So Ted Rollins was asked why he thinks Carrie confided in him during the interview and confessed to the four horrific murders. And Ted responds with Carrie sat back and he watched Stephen's first interview. He wanted to be seen and noticed. He wanted the world to know his story on his terms. There was something inside him that really did want attention. But Michael Kroll, the mitigation specialist in Carrie's case, had a different story. He says that as far from that that's as far from the truth as you can get. That Carrie was fame at first. He is not at all looking for attention. He never was. He had too many things he wanted to hide about himself. He had an awareness that he needed to be stopped. He needed an intervention. Michael's job was to erase what the people think they know and substitute what we want them to know. So he familiarized himself with every detail that was already public, including the movie and the script. He wrote the director of the movie, Ken Miller, asking for interviews with everyone to be sent to him, including the ones that, that had Carrie. When asked about his brother, Stephen, Carrie stated in sort of a mocking tone, I'm Stephen Stainer. His head was bloated out. You couldn't tell him 
what to do. He was just a normal everyday kid. The media blew it out of proportion and made him a hero. We never really got along that well after he came back. I guess that kind of upset my dad. My dad accused me that I didn't want to be the part of the family and stuff like that. Carrie is also quoted in the same interview as saying, oh, I didn't need to be loved that much, but I often wondered why I couldn't be loved a little bit like that in regards to how much Stephen was loved. In regards to what these quotes probably meant, Michael says that Carrie seems to have accepted a kind of hopelessness about his life. The key to all the storms going on with Carrie is when he says, I think my life ought to be a movie. And so I gave you all those quotes to say that there are so many speculations about why these two boys from the same family live very differing lives. Um, people think that, you know, um, his brother's abduction kind of shaped who he was um, afterwards. Some people think that he was always that way. And maybe it was just like not seen as much because everybody was attributing the things that he did and said to him being distraught about his brother. But no matter how the cookie crumbles, Carrie was Carrie and Carrie ended up taking four people's lives. Would he still have done that without Steven? We may never know. So when asked, does it add up, Carrie's sister-in-law, Jody says, no, it doesn't. And it never has. It's just so out of context of what his personality was and what he's done in the past. He wasn't like that. He was real calm and serene. He didn't have a temper and he wasn't a drinker. So to Jody, Carrie was not this person that killed four people, but somehow he was. I think that's crazy. Like I said, I, I can't, I will never know if Stephen's sh story shaped Carrie in the ways we think it shaped him or if Carrie was always going to be Carrie. When asked about the idea of closure, Kay, Carrie and Stephen's mother says, it stays with you forever. I think it stinks. Nothing ever closes, ever. Joey's parents, after the trial, were asked a similar question in which their response was, losing someone like this stinks and it sticks with you for the rest of your life. I think that this story, the reason why I was so intrigued by it is, like I said, just how much, if any, Stephen shaped how Carrie behaved and how much people notated the things that Carrie did and he said and how people were like, oh, he was always creepy, but he was handsome. And he was, you know, he was pulling his hair out and they attributed his nervous breakdowns and his anxiousness to his brother. But was this just him trying to convince himself not to do the things that he does later on in life? How do two people from the same family, you have one that risked everything to save someone else and still suffers tragedy after tragedy after tragedy and continues to keep trying to start his life anew and you have another one whose life is crumbling at the seams because his entire family is worried about his little brother and he's probably facing some guilt but he has these sick thoughts that he later carries out and so the Stainer family name has two meanings to it it's even said that at, at one point they were going to name, I, don't, I can't remember if it was a park or a street, 
um, they, they want, they asked for, um, suggestions on what to name it. And someone threw out Stainer and obviously, you know, they were talking about Steven and that idea got rejected because they were like, we don't want that tainted name on, on this property because we don't want people to attribute it to Carrie. And we don't want people to think that we're, we are honoring, um, someone who murdered and, and, um, sexually assaulted people. So that Stainer name is always going to hold, you know, weight. You're either going to know Steven, the hero Stainer, or you're going to know Carrie, the hideous monster Stainer. Two people, same family. Is it nurture or nature? DNA, like what plays a part in it? I don't know. I guess we'll never know. All right, so that is part two. That is the end of the story. Um, y'all let me know what y'all think in the comments about this whole thing, part one and part two, or you can email it to me. Um, let me know what you think about this story and how crazy it is. Um, and then the fact that like I, all the research that I did, there's so much out there. There's so many news articles and things. But there's not like a whole bunch of podcasts or not a whole bunch of like news stories. And I think just the fact that these two people come from the same family and have all this stuff happen to them. Um, and it's like night and day that this story would have been like a lot more publicized. But that's what I'm here for. So um, my advice for both parts of this story is, like I said last week, um, be transparent with your children and let them know, um, stranger danger. There's a reason why there's a such thing as stranger danger. Um, let your children know, you know, like I said, what protocols you're setting. If new people are coming to pick them up from school, you let them know that give them a safe word. Um, tell them that like no random person is just going to ever pick you up. Um, don't put their names and stuff on their like backpacks. Um, like don't like, I know we all all want to be, um, special and customize our kids things, but don't give, predators access to your children because especially when they're young when someone walks up to you and you're young and they know your name you kind of already trust like I, I remember being um young and um in elementary and I went to the same elementary school from kindergarten up until sixth grade and so people knew me they knew my name teachers knew my name and I didn't even have some of these teachers and so I remember being young and like walking the hall and random teacher teacher's assistant called my name I turned around and had a full conversation with them I don't even know who that person was I seen them later and that's how I was able to say that they're a teacher but I was so trusting because they knew my name just imagine you know your kid has a I mean, I know we write our kids, our names on our kids' backpacks, but I mean, like, imagine you, your kid has a custom jacket with their name on it and backpack with their name on it, other things with their name on it. And somebody is watching like Kenneth and they're like, oh, okay, they walk home for this amount of time or they're alone for this amount of time. And they call your kid by their name and your kid doesn't know stranger danger. And your kid doesn't know, Hey, just cause they know my name, don't talk to them. And your kid doesn't know a, a protocol for, you know, my mom's not, or my dad's not going to just send a random person to come talk to me or pick me up. We just have to stay vigilant. And, um, I think that's what I took the most from this story. The story, um, about Carrie, 
just be on your toes at all times. Just because they look good doesn't mean it's good. Some of the the some of the things that look the best, if you think about food, don't always taste the best. And I guess I mean that as far as looks, because there are too many times in history we've heard, oh, he was handsome. Oh, he was a ladies' man. Oh, he was this, and we were able, he was caring, and we were able to trust him. And those are the ones that are committing the most heinous crimes. So, anyways. I'm off my soapbox and out of here. So thank you for taking the time to let me tell you the story. I want to take a moment to remember Stephen, to remember Timmy, their families. Also want to take the time to pay homage and remember Julie, Carol, and Savina, and Joey um, from this week's story. And like I said, the families, because they suffered as well. They all suffered losses. And Stephen and Carrie's families, even though it's been so long ago, his parents suffered because they have to be remembered as the family that had, you know, Stephen, but also there's Carrie. And, um, you know, Stephen's kids, they went without their father And they, I'm sure at some point, learned about the horrible things that happened to their father and then turn around and learn about the horrible things that their uncle did. So please keep that family in your thoughts as you listen to this story. Um, So we're going to do our moment of silence. Remember to tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend to tell their friend about the little podcast uploading new episodes every Monday. Um, I have not done this and no one said anything, so obviously y'all don't care, but I need to post the last, the this story, part one and two, and then the prison break story um, on Instagram. I have not. Life has been crazy. Um, and I sometimes I hate looking for the pictures because they always want to give me the distorted ones and um yeah they look even worse when i post them on instagram so um anyways i'm gonna get on that i'm gonna post um what steven looked like what carrie looked like um if i can find pictures of their victims i'll or not their victims but if i can find pictures of carrie's victims um if i can find pictures of kenneth um and his two accomplices i'll try to post those two and then all the people that were involved in the prison break from last well from three weeks ago i'll try to post those as well but still follow the show at wlitd underscore podcast and email me at wlitd podcast at gmail.com all right you guys i am gone i am out good night remember don't just check up on people but be there for for them be present love one another be kind to one another support one another be a helping hand to one another and watch out for what lies in the dark I will be here next week, so I hope you will too for another episode to feed your truth.